This podcast is brought to you by UK Coaching, here for the coach. Visit ukcoaching.org to grow your coaching skills and be part of the community. Hello and welcome to the UK Coaching Skill Acquisition Podcast. I'm joined today by Ed Coglin and Stuart Lancaster. Welcome, guys. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, guys. Um, before we get into the, the area of skill development, skill acquisition, I think it'd be useful for you just to share with the listeners a little bit about your background and your uh, journeys into coaching. Over to you, Stu. Uh, yeah, so my um, career in coaching, I guess, began as a career as a teacher. Um, so I did a sports science degree, and then I did a PTCE, um, so basically the teacher education certificate that followed the degree. Um, so that led then to um, 10 years of teaching at a school called Kelpop High School in Wakefield. Um, uh, mainly just teaching PE. Um, I, I gravitated to leadership positions within the school, but it was mainly just a PE teacher. So it was you know, five lessons a day, five days a week, 40 weeks a year. Um, uh, 2000, I got the job as academy manager at the rugby club I was playing at, the game of professional, and I basically set up and run the Leeds Pikes as well as the uh, academy for five years. Uh, after that period, the director of rugby designs and I took over as head coach of the club. I was 35 at the time. Um, we got promoted at the Premiership and uh, we uh, uh, we did well overall. Um, and then uh, the RFU approached me to become head of elite player development. So basically that role was to run all the academy system in England alongside the international age group teams. So England 16s, England 18s, England 20s, England Saxons, uh, England women 7s, etc. Um, I did that for four years uh, and then the interim job came up as head coach of England, um, which I did for the Six Nations 2012. The permanent head coaching job uh, from April 2012 in the lead up to the World Cup. Um, the World Cup 2015 obviously didn't go the way I hoped, uh, and uh, I left the RFU in November 2015 and joined uh, various coaching jobs in between uh, leaving the RFU and joining Leinster. But I joined Leinster Rugby in uh, September 2016, uh, and uh, here I am now, two days away from the fourth round of Europe, where we play uh, Northampton this weekend uh, in 2019. Thanks, you for that great introduction, giving a bit of background to yourself. I think what highlights really is your experiences, whether it's working in schools, working with um, early developing young people in the pathway, or whether in high performance you bring a rich rich number of experiences to the discussion on skill development today. So thank you for that, and I look forward to hearing more. Ed, and what was your journey? Um, not dissimilar, actually. As, uh, I, I started coaching at 18 um, by accident more than anything else. Um, grew up in a very sporty uh, household, played a lot of sport in school and the like. And then all of a sudden, before I knew it, I, I was coaching. So quite, you know, traditionally I coached the way I was coached and did that for a few years and then kind of went on a different path for a while. Um, but the, the sport and the coaching stayed with me, went then to do a degree in sports science. And in that time in the degree in sports science, it kind of smashed a lot of my ideals about what uh what learning was and what i thought previous to that i i, I was your classic oh I, i'm just not mathsy so that's why i'm not good at maths it, it never dawned on me it was just because maybe i i, I had one bad result which made that i d- didn't go after it anymore let's say 
but I was good at English. So I just read more English and did more English, which made me better at English. And these self-fulfilling prophecies were what defined me until I went to do that degree in sports science. Um, in that degree, uh, almost immediately, I got hooked into the skill acquisition space long before it kind of became where it is nowadays. Um, I was very fortunate with some of the people I, I connected with there. And from that degree program, I was offered a, a PhD in skill acquisition in John Moore's University with Mark Williams and Paul Ford. And that was another kind of significant shift in my I suppose you call it my journey or my thinking, my philosophy, as um, where I found myself working in an incredibly diverse range of sports and different environments uh, in the in my years in Liverpool, um, which again, like anything else, helps continue to form your understanding of of yourself, but also helps continue to give yourself a kick in the arse to make you realise, you know, you, you you don't have it figured out, so just keep pushing forward in that regard. Um, that led me, you know, all through those kind of 10, 12 years, I was still coaching away, going through several Olympic cycles with different athletes. Um, and, um, and then at the end, I suppose, at the end of the PhD, I kind of found myself leaning towards going back into academia or going into academia in a formal capacity, which kind of has led me to where I am here now as a sports science lecturer in, in, in Cork Institute of Technology, but all the long, all the while I'm, I'm working um, when I'm not lecturing. I'm working with with coaches and and specifically with athletes. Uh, the work I do with coaches is very much on that similar space of you know going through their idea of what it is to learn um, and working through their own um, their own experiences. What I see a lot is of coaches um, who coaching in a sport that they played or coached the way they were coached even at a high level and and maybe the cultures or the traditions of the sport still heavily impact on their on their opinion and their philosophy about how how their their sport needs to be coached um, and then my own coaching is works heavily in the uh, skill acquisition space of trying to make their practice environment more robust more bulletproof um so that when they go and compete, it feels a lot more like uh, their practice. And in fact, if anything, it, 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 there's, a, there's a sense of comfort that comes from knowing that my practice is actually um, as reflective as it, as it can be, as simulated as it can be of, of what I'm going to experience in competition. Um, so currently where I'm at, I'm doing a lot of work now in professional golf. Um, having, you know, I, I grew up, as I said, in a sporting house, but I was never... I was never a, a scratch golfer, nothing close to it, but that's the beauty of working in Skillac is that it does, it affords you that opportunity to work in plenty of different spaces with, with a variety of different athletes and coaches. That's where I am right now. Thanks for that, Ed. Lots of little nuggets even in your, your introduction there. So if we get straight into it, if we say that skill development and the improvement of performance are at the very heart of coaching practice, what are the things that, that you feel, Stu, are essential for a coach to consider? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess the passion for coaching was ignited by the teaching career. So I've always had this um, desire to want to help people get better and improve. Um, so when you're a teacher, you are, you know, you're given 30 pupils, um, it's a badminton lesson, or it's a basketball lesson, or it's a gymnastics lesson, or it's a soccer or rugby or whatever it is. 
Uh, and um, that's where my sort of passion for teaching and coaching came from. Um, and the fundamentals of trying to develop skills in a, in a young group of people who've maybe not, not played the sport before. Let's say it's a, you know, it's a start of the term. It's a, it's a year seven group. Um, so 12 years old, come out of primary school, they've never played basketball before. How do we go about develop, giving them the basic fundamental skills to be able to play a successful game of basketball or hockey? Or I thought long and hard during my time as a teacher about how best to do that. And you know, that, that balance that you need to strive to achieve between making the sessions enjoyable, making them game related, making them Make, helping them make decisions within the games, but also teaching the fundamental techniques that go alongside those games. So whether, let's say, it was a, it was a racket sport or whether it was a, a ball sport or, or even um, the skills of gymnastics. Um, so it really stretched you. And it, 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 you do it, um, you know, you plan your session, you do your session, you do your session. Let's say you do that five times a day, five days a week. So that taught me about the balance, I think, all coaches need to have in their locker, which is that um, ability to improve skill and technique, but also to create scenarios that allow them to develop game understanding at the same time. That, for me, has always been the heart of my coaching philosophy, really. So when I went to coach in the professional environment in rugby, you know, you're right in saying I've coached at every level of the game, so from international rugby down to son's under 16 when he you know he was under six he started playing tag rugby um coached schools universities uh, international age grade teams uh, but the principles remain the same and even now at leinster you know we're a, a high performing rugby union team my sessions still revolve around the same thing how can i develop the skills um, so they become ingrained habits in the players uh, and how can i develop the session allows the players to make as many decisions within that session to help them become unconscious uh, when the games come around. And, you know, the game of rugby is a pretty chaotic game to us, so it's quite hard to plan for everything. So I'd be a lot more on the unstructured part of rugby than, than, than a structured coach. The point I just want to pick up on there, Stu, was a bit of what you mentioned there about reflection. So as a teacher, you're teaching four or five lessons a day and making time to reflect on your your practice, the experiences you make. And often I hear comments from coaches about they don't have time to reflect, but you're making time within a day, four or five times, to reflect on your practice, the interactions that you're having with your students, and what worked well for them, what what do you need to do to maximise their experiences, and, and generally to, to move them forward as, as young people. The importance that you place on that reflection to to impact on the next lesson and, and to make a difference to everyone, I think that shouldn't be underestimated and can't be missed yeah i mean i mean sometimes the turnaround is incredibly tight when you're a teacher um but you know one group of people leave the change room another group must queue outside to come in but you've also got time for reflection and you know a lot of my reflection also would be done you know on the journey to school on the journey back from school and i would always create space in my day to think and plan the session properly i think everyone deserves the deserves that opportunity to have a good session prepared and planned for them and then I'd always make time in the day to think and review how each and every session went. So, for example, this morning, we're, we're a day before a big game, but we've got a group of six players who have been injured. So I'm doing a skill development session with them post this podcast, actually. And, uh, uh, you know, I spent last night thinking about the session, 
content? What do I want to get out of it? How can I develop the skills within it? So just because it's six players who aren't playing, who are you know recovering from injury, they deserve as much attention from me as do the starting 15 who play against Northampton this weekend. A massive thing there, Stu, for me is uh, going much wider than just uh, skill acquisition and skill development really is is coaching principles there that you talked about, uh, caring for your athletes, coaching the person in front of you, creating an environment that enables them to be the best they can be. It doesn't matter whether you've got six or 12 or, or 20, whether they're uh, young students, um, school pupils, uh, community club or international athletes, is giving them the time, making them feel connected and cared so that they get the best possible experience when they're working with you. I, don't, I mean, that's, that'd be fundamental to my coaching philosophy in that there's no ABC of importance, you know, in, in, in anyone you coach. You know, I, I, you said to me I couldn't coach rugby again at, at the level I'm coaching and I have to go back into teaching schools. I would I'd be more than happy, you know, I, I, would, I would enjoy that just as much as I do. And I think that's part of coaching and teaching is that you have to genuinely enjoy the process of helping people get better. And, and the other, I guess the other thing that really probably is fundamental to me is helping me get better and helping building teams. So I'd be more a team-based coach, but it's not to say I couldn't coach an individual sport, but um, you know, I, I enjoy the the team-building aspect and, and creating the culture and the environment that goes alongside you know, the skills and everything within it. Thanks for sharing those opening insights. Um, I think they're really powerful. That they just highlight the greater part that it's just greater than coaching practice and that skill development doesn't work in isolation there's the importance of understanding the athlete the relationships that you build with participants knowing yourself what what motivates you what how do you get the best out of you when is you on a good day when we understand the relationship and the individuals that within our team how do we motivate them what what floats them to get better how do we maximize their learning and opportunities and the complexity and the connection between all those things it doesn't happen in in isolation in pockets and i think the last piece you mentioned there around leadership is it doesn't matter whether you work with a team or an individual the reality is for many coaches we work in training groups and it's about creating a culture uh, leading and creating an environment and a platform in which the, the athletes can be the best they can be and then when then you can develop that skill and create that context of learning and development from from within so thank you for that Ed, what are your thoughts? It's remarkable the overlap in one sense because the key words that jumped out for me there were kind of skill development and improvement of performance. And yet, I, I, I'm now a dad and I have an 11-year-old and a 7-year-old. So how, how I coach and how I like to coach when I, when I rock up, if I'm around, I'll take the under-12s. And if I'm around, I'll take the under-8s happily. I just, I love that space of going in back to that place where it's, not about a, 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 a you know the, a winning check. It's not about uh, world ranking points. It's not about these elements of satisfying huge career, essentially career needs of a professional athlete. And it's just back to seven year olds and eleven year olds who are there to because they they want to be there and they love being there. And yet I don't coach that differently in 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 that space now previously i probably would have felt i needed to adapt or adjust my coaching heavily of course there is certain certain little amendments and little little tweaks that you make but largely the principles of of how i like to coach is, is are still there are still apparent 
with the kids. And I think a lot of that has been it has been impacted because of my journey. And it goes again to one of the words that that, that Stuart mentioned there, which is that idea of just reflecting. I I think I when I when I go back and reflect, there was a time when I probably thought I reflected, but I'm not too sure if I actually did it properly. And that's something that I've learned over the last few years. There's actually a skill to reflective practice, to actually do it right so that it, it genuinely impacts on your behavior. It's not, and I think that's where I would have fallen down in the past where I, I thought about that session, yeah, and and, and, that, and I would have put it away because I thought about it. But I was like, hang on, no, there's, a, there's actually a lovely in the reflective practice process, which it really only ma- measures or it matters if it has had an impact on your next behavior. And I would never have, I wasn't hard enough, I suppose, in one sense on myself to, to say, okay, I have reflected on it. I've, you know, gone back and maybe asked for feedback from players or athletes and I've, and so on and so forth. But I've, I haven't been hard enough myself to determine whether it has actually changed my behavior the next time I've coached. And I think that's been something that has had a big impact then on on my experiences because now over the last you know number of years, 10, 12 years, I've been much firmer on myself to make sure that the reflection that I do isn't just for reflection's sake, isn't just for a preparatory thing uh, to be ready for the session, which again, like like what Stuart was saying there, you got you have to be ready for the session, you have to be. But it would almost stop there for me previously. Yes, I'm ready. I've done my work beforehand. And then I would almost just reflect on, on what I did as opposed to, well, hang on, am I reflecting on, have I done enough reflection on my behavior in that space? Am I, uh, am I avoiding those kind of questions? And I'd go back and I'd almost do a, a microstructure of practice analysis on it that, yeah, that bit worked and that bit ran on time and that bit, we got through that and yeah, I got a little bit of nice feedback there. And yeah, there's some some feedback that I need to work on there. And almost I'd almost rush through the process without ever actually reflecting on my behavior. Has my behavior changed from one session to the next? And I think that's been a refreshing thing for me now in the last few years when I'm now back, you know, with the opportunity to coach kids. They don't have the filter that adults sometimes have, you know? Because they're not aware that they're trying to protect or mine someone's ego with how they give you feedback. It's a wonderful spot to be in, but it has also just just triggered in me that idea of my skill development, my improvement of my performance is also going to be impacted on their skill development and their improvement of their performance based on how I ensure that my behavior improves from session to session, week to week, season to season, and so on and so forth. And I think that was one of the things that has changed in my experience over the last kind of 10, 12 years to look closer at how did the session impact on my behavior for the next time I go out? Am I, am I actually checking in on the behavioral elements of my interaction with the, with the athletes and even my behavioral elements with the other coaches that I work with? Um, and across, let's say, even beyond the coaching team, the admin staff, the, the, or the, or the squad. And I think that's been something Again, yes, you mentioned skill development and improvement of performance. I, uh, I've, I, I encourage coaches to not just have that lens on for the skill development, improvement of performance for the athletes, 
but also to engage sufficiently in reflective practice so that th- those elements have an impact on the coach and the coach's behavior as well. For that opportunity to know when to get out of the way and let them figure stuff out. Um, and I think that's had, that's something that, in, you know, in my current journey, that's only every day I could try, I just have convinced myself that it's only just starting is, is that idea of know when to get out of the way, know when to shut up, know when to step away. And then know also that when you are maybe coming into engage, that you engage through complex questions, more complex problems, as opposed to I have the answer because I've got coach written on my back and I've got a whistle around my neck and I've got a clipboard in my, under my arm. So I have the answer. And it's, that's been a big part of, 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 I suppose, my experiences over the last kind of 10, 15 years. So I was pulling it together for both these sessions. What's really clear is you both have a passion for coaching, uh, but it's not just based on, on the tech and tech. It's about helping people to achieve their potential. It's more than just the uh, content of the session. It's about making a real difference to the individuals that you work with. And that links back to what Stuart was talking about when he was mentioning about his students and that coaches are there to facilitate learning, not to give the answers, that you create the environment for which learning can happen. Pulling that together, the coach has the confidence and feels comfortable to be able to uh, ask questions of the uh, athletes and and to find out what's what's going on for them and uh, to better understand what what the reflections are and understand how they're engaging in it and so that they're getting a real understanding of what is actually going on in the practice and to understand how they can make the biggest impact for the individuals. I, I think there's a couple of things that, I, that I've that i even touched on recently from quotes from people that, that have really resonated with me. John Kessel, the USA volleyball coach, um, said recently, said, we are working to become the person we needed when we were young. And, and that, that resonated with me because I know the, the younger coach of me was pretty much coaching the way that I was coached myself. And my experiences in, in coach education then further reinforced in those early years of coach education, further reinforced some of the things I believed to be my, my job as a coach. And it's not always the case. And I think in that regard, that kind of leads me to, to, to another thing that I, I heard recently is just that error correction is the athlete's job, not the coach's job. So that was a, that's a, that was a huge shift for me a number of years back. Now I hadn't articulated in the way that Rob Gray said that, but but that was that was a major thing for me to step away from that idea that my job is to correct the athlete's errors. And it's I just I I, I fundamentally don't agree with that anymore. I suppose it, it my job nowadays I feel is is to sometimes the best way to solve a complex problem is to create more problems for the athletes, not to go in and fix it all for them. But to actually try and be the coach that is going to just maybe tweak the the task, tweak the, the 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 game or whatever it is that you're engaged in, in a way that it actually alters the the problem that needs solving. And maybe it's it was too difficult a problem initially, and it needs to be easier. Or maybe it was too easy that they actually missed it, and it needs to needs to be made more difficult. But it is to avoid and really fight the urge to go in and fix. Stuart, it's really interesting just to pick up on the point that, that Ed made then that um, error correction is the, the role of the athlete. In your own steps of performance and your own experiences of, of developing skill, what are the two or three key messages or principles that you think would benefit 
other coaches as they look to enhance their understanding of skill development. Just a correction one. So I, when you're coaching at the top end of sort of international sport, you know the players do have a huge amount of knowledge of the skills and the techniques required. But there is still part of me that needs to help them gather the information and make the right decisions under pressure. So I wouldn't be completely down the route of it's the athlete's problem here to solve and I'm here as the facilitator to help them do that. Sometimes they do need you know, the helicopter view from the coach. Say, listen, from the outside looking in, here are some of the challenges we face in this game. Because when you're in the middle of the game, it's actually very difficult to work that out. Now, um, there's a balance I, I accept to, achieve, to achieving that. But with younger, with younger rugby players, again, there is an element of education as well as empowerment. You know, I think that's the... The challenge I'm always trying to achieve, you know, asking the right questions, developing the right session content to help them solve their own problems. But equally, occasionally, you know, it's it's guided discovery, I think, is the best way I can describe it. That's how I would describe my philosophy. There is a guiding hand from the coach you know, that does help, certainly in rugby. I guess other things that really I'm thinking about, or I always think about, is that balance between repetition of technical skill to get it ingrained and making the practice and chaotic. So trying to hit that balance, I think, is a really important art of coaching. I think a lot about variety within my sessions. And I think if, if your coaching becomes repetitive, even though there are elements of repetition in it, then your game becomes predictable. And obviously, we don't want to be a predictable team. Certainly at Leinster, we don't want to be a predictable team. We want to be an adaptable team. So I try and make my sessions um, a balance between elements of repetition of core skill, um, so they become unconscious, but elements of variety uh, and challenge that means the players get used to that random approach the way that the game unfolds well i think i think i think a lot about memory recall and how players remember information and reflect themselves so i think part of me thinks obviously yes i reflect on my session but that's not to say when monday more monday evening comes and tuesday morning arrives the players have done the same so part of my process on a Tuesday morning following a Monday session or a Monday review or whatever is to get them to reflect back to Monday and talk about what we talked about as a group to recall what happened to create that sort of hardwiring in their minds over what the game plan is over what the focus areas for the week are you have to teach them how to reflect and if you do that well then I found that that translates into what I'll call unconscious competence so when the game comes around they can deliver without thinking because there, it's it's been it's been done so many times in training. It's been reflected so many times in training. I guess the final thing is people talk about the variety of coaching and the importance of that. I would question sometimes how many coaches have the variety in their locker. Have you got the variety in your locker? So I try and create space in my to be creative with my coaching. Come up with different games, different drills, different sessions. There is no one book you can buy on coaching that gives you a whole load of drills anyway. I think successful coaches are the ones I've worked with who are the most successful. They have, a, they have a toolkit of skills and aims and techniques that they use, but they tweak them and, and change them all the time. So they have that variety and that creativity as a coach is important as well as the repetition and the, and the random practice. Thanks, Joe. And just on that, I think one of the things that stood out to me there when you were you were talking was some similarities there. We've both um, we've both been around Tony Smith when you were at Leeds and he was at the Rhinos and my time with with England Rugby League. Tony was the first coach to encourage and take the lot the shackles off me really to um, to practice and to do things that 
outside of the constraints or traditionally in short-term representative rugby league, certainly that um, there'd be a limit on what you could do when you stick to traditional areas. And he'd be giving me the, if you like, the permission to to work on on things and perhaps do go back to being the skills that I'd use as a as a PE teacher and create variety and do those very different things. The other thing I noticed. Um, that came through in your conversation was listening about your philosophy and it comes really clear that, that your philosophy and your how you want to play the game comes really crossing your your skill development and therefore it's in your practices and therefore the skills and behaviours that a player needs to have are very much ingrained into your approach and I also picked up and I support this the idea that players need to have the skills in order to be successful in the high performance arena and what you identified there was the idea of players need to be developed to be able to reflect to make decisions and these need to be led and developed gradually over time we can't just expect the players to magically have these skills just like we need to develop their footwork and their their passing and their kicking and their movement skills we need to develop the key skills that make them performance athlete so how we develop that toolkit of skills so that they've got them ready to be able to make decisions and facilitate their development no, certainly, uh, you know, a lot of the players I coach are academy athletes who are graduating into senior rugby. So they're, they've, they've been reasonably successful, you know, and been picked usually in every team that they've tried to get in. And they no, they haven't even, until they even dawned on them, you know, the, the, the thought that they have to reflect back or what, 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 how, how, to, how their skills become developed or their understanding of the game um, or how to make that unconscious inside them, you know, delivers under pressure. So I try and making it too theoretical i'll try and give them some of the theory and the principles behind coaching they understand why we do certain things um, and why we train the way we do and why we um, try and create the habits the way uh, the way in which we do it so it helps them grow more quickly and that's obviously running alongside the leadership development of young people and the cultural side and the identity and all the other things that wrap into um, team performance yeah it's uh, i mean the bigger bigger picture uh, you mentioned it before it's like a helicopter view it's coaching from that level up and and recognizing what we need to do at which time um, is it about practice design is it about developing the individual ama in a, a period of development that's pre-competition is it an early time in early season is it pre-season am i trying to develop leadership qualities is it about focusing on the climate that we're trying to create as a group and as an individual is it about the culture and the environment we're trying to trying to foster? What are the things that uh, I'm focusing on? And as you mentioned it before, it's the really it's the art of of coaching, focusing on on and tweaking the the right bits and what groups do what do we need to do as a group in order to maximise the development of each individual and us as a collective, and recognising what needs to be tweaked when, like almost like an equaliser, where we're which pieces are we tweaking now? Yeah, it's like, it's like a it's the spinning plate analogy in that you know, you've got lots of plates you're spinning at the same time and you know, ideally in every session or every day you know so a typical day obviously in the professional environment is you know you've got elements of training sessions obviously you're on field you know it's 40 minutes but you've got meetings you've got unit meetings there's lots of there's walkthroughs the skill development within what conditioning sessions and with anyone in any one day you can actually hit a lot of spinning plates and just keep them spinning so it, it gradually develops them holistically across the board in every area. Some coaches who would be very singular minded in one particular area and yet all of the plates are starting to fall. 
Before I bring you in, Ed, just one of the things I want to pick up on that uh, Stuart mentioned, and um, one of the things I hear coaches often say is I don't have the contact time, and um, I've heard Stuart say that it's about the ability to mix the technical skills with physical conditioning, and then how I combine these perhaps when I've only got one or two sessions a week. So how do I develop skill within the warm-up, physical preparation perhaps within a warm-up or part of the activity, uh, movement breaks and focus and distraction controls, conditioning within the skill session, challenging when perhaps challenging my, my players when they're fatigued, and how do I pull back sometimes because it's close to a competition and I perhaps need to use walkthroughs, be a little bit less active and perhaps encourage the players to do more discussion, more reflection and thinking rather than being physically demanding. So there's a quality on the effort. I'm encouraging them to have quality practice rather than volume of practice. They also, Chris, they also, there's a lot of time when they're not with you that you can still impact on them, you know, just through you know, the way that technology has developed. You know, I, I would regularly send out, uh, we've got WhatsApp groups, the playing group, and let's say I'm not coaching full-time, let's say I'm coaching Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, part-time club. Um, I, I, can, I can easily review a game, clip it into six or seven minutes, I can talk over the top of the clips. I can create that into a little movie. I can send it out on the Sunday night or the Monday morning. They'll watch it on the phones. I can come across a brilliant example of teamwork in a basketball team in the USA, and I can clip that and I can show it to the playing and put it on the WhatsApp group. And I can, you know, you're constantly thinking of ways to influence the behavior of the team that you're coaching or the individuals that you're coaching. And it's way, way beyond the 40 minutes of a coaching session that actually got them on the field. Thanks, you, Ed? What are the three things that you'd like to share with the coaches out there that you think would help in the development of their practice and skill development and skill acquisition for their uh, for their athletes? Some, some of that, some of myself would be quite different actually to what Stuart has mentioned, which is when I look at the idea of, of trying to develop skill, I, I try to go away from trying to ingrain skill. And, I, they, and it's, I'm not saying it's, right, wrong, whatever, for me, just for what I see from what the evidence is suggesting, that to try and ingrain it is to try then, and, and again, it goes to that kind of term we have, skill acquisition. Some people will interpret that as an end point, but for me, skill acquisition is, is, is not. It, there's no full stop or period at the end of that. It's, it's actually to, to, to create an adaptable skill, so not one that is you know fits a, a a technical model per se or and and especially let's say for, for 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 the space i'm in now predominantly in the golf space which is seen as a very very technical sport and so on and so forth it's 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 trying to get the players and even the coaches that i engage with to move away from that 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 idea of ingraining it so i would i try i, I try and encourage coaches to actually coach the adaptability of the skill first, rather than the the technical proficiency, and to allow it to go from from that space, and and I mean even that from a tactical perspective as well. So for all the years that I would have been involved in in team sports and the like, it's you know for pattern recognition. This is a play that we're going to run, and and where previously I would have probably run a play a number of different times to kind of again get that feeling of get. Get the, it is ingrained into them that they know this play. I now, over the last number of years, I, I will I will encourage coaches uh, much more to say, okay, well, let's get them just really good at reading any pattern, not this pattern, but let's make them adaptable 
so that their pattern recognition skills have improved. Not the running of that pattern is improved, but their capacity to read and engage and adapt to whatever pattern is 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 coming in, in front of them. So I think in that in that regard, I would I'd encourage like if it, you know if you were to ask me three essential things, one would be to would be to encourage coaches towards adaptability as opposed to technical proficiency. And if, if, if I can unpick that a little bit, to actually start start with, uh, and again, to go to an analogy, a lot of coaching sessions, you know, start with the different elements of the game and, da, da, and then they'll finish with the game. I'm encouraging coaches to start with the game. Have the, have the entire session, even at an elite level, through elements of the game, through episodes that happen in the game to not reduce it down so much and and in that regard then to come to come out of that and as you go into that space of i encourage I, I try and encourage coaches to not aim to have their athletes ingrain a skill i try and encourage coaches and athletes to if you're going to ingrain anything ingrain adaptability into into your toolbox let's say the other one would be reflective practice. Again, I, I, I'd agree with Stuart there. It is, it is a teachable skill. It is a learnable skill, but it is a, fundamentally, it's a skill. So many people, and it, it was the same for me. When I first actually d- dived into the area of reflective practice, I couldn't believe how I had misconstrued uh, it, misinterpreted it. It's incredibly rich to do it, to do it right. And I'm, and I still love the idea of trying to figure out how to do it better. But I know from how I used to reflect, I, it, it's, it's, it is important for people to almost to, to go after it in a, in a very formal way, you know, because there are so many other layers to reflective practice than what I think are just out there in the ether. There is there's actually there's some really good um, models that help will help people to guide them through better ways of reflecting on their practice and on, on their coaching. The, the, other, the, other side, the other side of that, I think, is the, the idea of trial and error. I think you, you mentioned something earlier on around, you know, how does, you know, how does the coach know when to do one thing or, or another? And uh, do they use block practice or not? And what's the evidence say? And so on and so forth. I'm, I encourage coaches a, a lot to, to be in the space where you are prepared to try things in training and to leave the ego at the door. And we, we, we need to be better at this. And again, it, it kind of speaks a lot to the, some, of the, some of the narratives and some of the conversations going on around mental health at the moment. But it's the same. It, it, it's somewhat similar. We, we need coaches to feel like they can fail in practice. They can fail in the training environment. And I think coaches w- would will go a long way to have those conversations with their athletes and say, okay, guys, I'm, I, I, in the same way that I want, I'm, you hear me encouraging you to try things and to learn through trying, trying that pass, trying that kick, trying that shot. And, and then we'll engage in that reflective to say, well, why did that work? Okay, and, and how can we, what, what do you think you'll need now to, to challenge that a bit more? Coaches have that conversation with us and say, okay, guys, I equally need to have the freedom to try things here. If you're expecting everything that I ask you to do to work from me, that's an unnecessary pressure, to be perfectly honest, in the training space. The practice and the training space 
is is a place where coaches, I think, need to have much more open conversations with their athletes and say, I'm here just like the rest of you trying to figure this out. I want to make the boat go faster just like you do. But you've got to also afford me that 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 little bit of space where I, I can try things. They can spectacularly fail with with me as well. And for us all to buy into that idea of, well, let, let's, let's get after trying things. So then it moves away from technical proficiency more towards principles of play. And it's not that you don't go technical, but it's that it's, it, the starting point comes from the game. The starting point comes from the principles of play. The starting point comes from developing more adaptable players. And then if someone is technically, you know, if they're deficient technically on something, I would encourage I would encourage the coaches, and this would be the final thing, I would encourage the coaches then to try and break away from the culture of how their sport would normally fix a technically deficient issue with an athlete. Because I think that's something that I'm seeing for years, how the culture and traditions of a sport have a huge impact on the thinking and the narrative inside in, in coaches' heads. And I think it's really important that they get out of that and they try to break the culture. They, they try and break the tradition of their sport and realize that, well, in a completely other sport, to conduct myself in this way would be wholly acceptable. But just because I'm in this sport over here, that's not acceptable. And I, I think there are things that actually slow down progress and slow down their, their opportunity to actually a bit like, again, to use that phrase, that helicopter view, to actually have a helicopter view of their entire sport. What are the cultures and traditions that really heavily impact on my sport? Because you know what? That's just something that's, we, we, uh, you know, it's that, going back to that classic, this is the way we've always done it type of um, analogy. And no one likes to hear that when they, when they do. So when we, we should, I think, work really hard to find out what are those rate-limiting factors in the culture and traditions of our sport and that'd be something i'd be encouraging coaches to do a lot of if they could you just mentioned uh, moving away from the traditions of your sport can you just give for the listeners one or two examples of what you mean um, what that looks like um, if, if you wouldn't mind ed yeah well i i speak my own personal experiences i think the when i like for for years before i found skill acquisition my work was it was in strength and conditioning that was my job for 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 years that you know space of trying to develop the speed, the power, the explosiveness of the players, and so on and so forth. And it's incredible when when I when I used to do that, I worked a lot with in, in track and field in that space. I was just doing what other track and field coaches did. I never looked outside of track and field about how to improve an athlete. So then you you find yourself working with a middle distance runner, a long distance runner, and you're thinking. Okay, you have chats with coaches. Oh, well, they have to do this much mileage in a week if you're going to get them here. They have to do this much baseline running. They have to build. And you're like, okay. And all of a sudden, you, you, you just ask a question, be thinking, why do they have to? Because if, 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 it's, if it's as clear cut as this, if it is a have to, why so does, do, do they all re respond and react so completely differently to the same stimulus? If, if it was so hard and fast, well, then they would all respond in the same way. But of course, they don't because they're all individuals. Uh, this is what this is what worked for me with this athlete. And now I have another athlete in the same discipline. So I'm going to do the same with this athlete now. And you're like, that's just ignoring the individuality of, of the person standing in front of you, the specificity of the training that they require. 
I think that's that's just in track and field. I see it now in golf. The 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 the, the golf space is so so technical for a lot of coaches, and not not all of them, but so many of the coaches, so many of the players. When you talk to the players. And you say, well, how do you fix this? Well, I've got to go to the range. I've got to get a bag of balls and I've got to just drill that into me, ingrain that into me, get that position here. And you're thinking, but every single shot you hit is being impacted by the conditions, the kind of grass you're playing in, weather, heat, whatever, wind, the lie that you have, everything is changing around you. But you're then trying to put this rigid, ingrained skill into a very fluid mobile space. And I find that is that's a major hurdle for actual, the actual skill acquisition, the adaptability of the skills of athletes and, and of coaches. I did work in swimming for years, and the traditions and cultures in swimming were mind-numbing to me about how it was just everyone doing the same thing over and over again. That's, that's, that's your culture in the sport. That's your tradition telling you about this. You've got you've to try and break out of that and, and come back in. Maybe you'll realize, actually, no, it is the best, what we're doing. But you got to get away to figure that out first and then come back with more, it was much more of an informed view of what is actually the best thing for the athlete. Ed was just mentioning there the idea of breaking away from tradition and moving away. Um, Stu, can you just give a, an example of where you might have just taken away from traditional practices or thought differently about the way that you want to develop skill? And just share that with the listeners to give some insights from from your perspective, please. Yeah, I mean, we would do a lot of very games based approach. You know, as Ed has said, you know, we would do a lot of games in training, and you could always use different balls and different stimulus. The, the session I'm going to do today is probably more akin to basketball, to be honest, than it is rugby. But um, so yeah, so I think there's there's lots of examples of that in rugby and in and in the other sports I've coached. I think the 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 art of it is just hitting the balance. The idea of, you know, you can, if you only play games with the players, uh, and I saw this philosophy begin to develop in England um, during my time in, in the academy programme, we had a very strong emphasis on a games-based approach to developing adaptability and ability to read the cues and pattern recall and that sort of stuff, which is fantastic. But I do think there is, if there's a continuum, if that's at one, one end of the extreme you know where you've got this this games-based approach and then the other end of the stream you've got this really structured technical right these are the plays we're going to run this is the way you're going to pass the ball this is the way you're going to run the team you know if you imagine those uh, two ends of the continuum i think i think there's a there's a sweet spot in the middle because you have to still there are still elements of technical skill that the players need to be able to do to be able to make the game work um, I don't imagine being a basketball player and you, you can't shoot. You have to learn the, the technique of shooting. Now, I know there's different ways of shooting. but So, so I, I try and make my games adaptable to make, to make the players make decisions, to deal with different scenarios that come at them, very random approach. But it still also has an element of, this is still rugby. Because yes, I saw a lot, of, a lot of coaching going on where, right, we can pass the ball in any direction. We'll play like rugby netball or whatever. Uh, and then, then when the players came to the game, the actual game, well, you can't pass the ball forwards, you've got to pass the ball backwards. So you've got to develop the concepts of forward, support, how to create depth and alignment, how to run good lines to create space. So, yeah, we, we would use different balls, we use different stimuli, we'd, we'd play the game in different ways. But fundamentally, it would always be a version of the game, the, the sport that I'm coaching. Because the, pattern, the patterns then become 
pattern recall thing is is definitely a big part to play in rugby for sure. And some of the best players I've coached, you know, Owen Farrell or Johnny Sexton, these sorts of players, they they can see the play before it's happened. And the reason they can do that is because they have played the game in in training so many times. They've played a certain number of games. They've watched the game, and it's no coincidence in rugby in particular, I guess. But it's I guess the same in many other sports. Because Owen has, dr- has, has grown up in a rugby family and his dad's been watching rugby and he's been watching rugby since he was, you know, even when he's not playing the game, he's watching the game and the patterns become, becomes attuned to seeing the patterns. So, like today's session, we'll have an element of, you know, we will make it more like basketball, but on a day-to-day basis, the games that we play will have a similarity to this, the, the outcome that I, I need on a, on a Saturday to win. It's really interesting to listen to you, Stu, and, and the fact that yourself and, and Ed are speaking from a slightly different perspective, but saying the same sort of message, really. And what you're talking about there is that pattern recognition and creating an environment and so that the players are familiar with it. And I suppose that builds on the, the example you gave there with Owen is around him having the confidence to see things and take those opportunities. And that probably links into one of the, the Twitter questions that we were asked. So the question really was around how we can help players manage their anxiety so just um, back to you Stu because you're on is um, how do you do help players develop the confidence and, and get over any anxiety in the in the build-up to the game or training you've got to understand where anxiety comes from um, in, young, in, in young people and usually it's come from one of two areas really one is the coach and the second is the parent so I would first of all rather than try and get to the outcome of managing anxiety why 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 are we creating an anxious player there's, there's a lot of coaching i see which is excellent and um the players are engaged they're confident the session has the right amount of challenge to to make it stimulating but not so hard that they fail all the time they've got empathy when the game comes you know they treat the players with respect they develop them as individuals and i rarely see any anxiety you know sometimes you get a parent on the sideline shouting and you need to manage i know one of the questions that we looked at before we came on you know was you know the the role of the parent, and it's such a such an important. So to flip that on his head, if you've got the opposite, if you've got a coach or poor coaching that takes place, you know, which is too challenging, it's autocratic, it's it's not enjoyable, um, it's win at all costs, um, and a parent on the sideline who's living their lives with a son or daughter, then clearly you're going to get an anxious child. And my starting point would be one to the coach to try and help them understand the behaviours, the anxiety they're creating within their sessions, and two to the parents. To help educate them. So I would do a session with the parents before the season started to say, here's some examples of how you can be a fantastic parent. Here's some examples of ways in which you can help be. There's a great book, Finding the Champion in Your Child. And I think, uh, you know, I'd, I'd give them to those sorts of books and, you know, to ask good questions rather than tell their son or daughter what they thought on a Sunday afternoon when they're driving home from the, from the game. If everything was in place and, you know, the coaching was good and the parents were supported and the, and the child was still anxious, I would talk a lot about need just to do your best i would relate it to my my stories um and uh, my experiences you know i've been high profile positions and things that won games and lost games but my parents always taught me just to do your best and you know to stay in the moment as well um i, I mean one of the big things i think that the best players do is they their ability to stay in the moment to not worry too much about the past or worry about what the future may hold and i think you know it's, it's an art again i think we can develop within young people really mindfulness and all that sort of Ability to, to stay present is a big part, a big part in, in professional sport now. You know, most clubs would employ some element of that. And I think we can do, we can help young children or, or children or, or, or academy players or 
teenagers who are progressing through into senior teams. That's part of coach education, I think. We don't create the anxiety because of the way we coach. We don't allow the parents to create the anxiety. But if it is there, for whatever reason, we encourage them to stay in the moment, but also ultimately to do their best. And, and that's ultimately anyone can ever do it. And, and obviously fill them full of confidence and belief and reinforcement that they are an outstanding individual. And I think what you've done there, Stu, is provided a, quite an easy structure for a coach to consider. But the first thing I need to think about is what am I doing as a coach? So is it the language I'm using? Is it my approach? Is it the things that I'm saying? Is it the, am I stretching or challenging too much? Am I not giving enough support? Is there high stretch and, and low support? Is there low challenge? Is there high challenge? What what does that look like in my practice? So am I putting too much pressure on the playing position? Am I overemphasizing the win? What am I doing in practice? Am I not giving them enough support? And then if I've considered that, I need to also think about these young people. Who else might be putting pressure on them? You mentioned parents. And so am I aware of the parents? And what responsibilities as a coach am I doing to, to support the youngster? And, 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 to, and as you use the word, to develop and educate the parents to better understand where we are. And it's about developing enjoyment over the winning. And, and then to link at other people that can provide support, teachers, other coaches. So as a coach, my responsibility is to think about how individuals might be contributing to that, to anxiety and, and pressure. I need to help them understand that the reality is that this is about enjoyment and fun. And, and as we know, as much as many people have aspirations, young people and the parents, to play at the highest level, the reality is for many people that they don't make it. But it is really important that we keep the retention in our game and our sport and they, they keep that passion and love. And pressure that we put on them can have a massive impact in that. And Ed, what are your thoughts? I think there's similar, uh, similar enough to, to what you're saying there. It's just that important for that connection. I think um, I've been asked this quite a bit over the last over the last number of years. Um, maybe it's because I'm now back. People maybe might find out that I'm working with kids, so they're like, "Oh, you work to work with kids too." So how do you? And I, one of the things I, I say to them, I I, I kind of go through a little a little model. As such, it's I call it the peak model. Peak with a Q though. P E A Q. I try to steer away from my experiences when I'm dealing with these issues because I'm not a sports psychologist. I'm not. I, I try I try and let the evidence kind of come out in how I talk with them. And the, with the PEAK model, it stems from praise, P, praise, E for explore, A for affirmation, and Q for question. And what, what, what that all speaks to is praise a lot in my coaching when the praise is necessary. But if there's... If if they if they make an error, I'm I'm just silent. I let them not feel like an error is is something where oh I'm going to hear from Ed because I've made a mistake. And this I'm speaking very specifically with younger with the younger athletes now. As your question as your question alluded to, it, it, ironically, it does also impact how I would coach with adults and 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 the elite level. But for the younger athletes, it's just it's it's through praise, and it's not the misinterpreted interpretation of praise of, of how I've seen is misinterpreted which is praise everything all the time and let's boost these kids and no and I and I've, I've often heard people go on about you know the snowflake generation and this that I find all those terms hugely disrespectful towards kids and young people because they're not they're, they're they're none of these things to be in my experience of of, of working with kids nowadays they're, they're none of these things and but if we if we can come to a place of respect with the kids I think it changed the entire conversation. If they feel that when they are talking to the coach or when the coach is talking with them, that they feel, I got this person, this man or woman standing in front of me who is older than me, 
actually respects me. They don't know how, or they don't know why, or they may not be able to articulate that, but they can feel it. I think that's where that comes from. And I think it starts for me with praise. That because praise has been consistently shown to improve the uptake of feedback, it improves perceived competence in, in people, and it also has a significant impact on their motivation. Now, it's only praise when they've done something that is worthy of praise. And then from, from there, then, when, when, when you move away from that space and say, well, okay, well, I'm not going to praise something then, or I'm not going to say something when it's not wrong, when, it, when it's gone wrong, that allows then exploration to kick in. Because I'm actually going to, I want to allow them that place where I've gotten it wrong, that pass went to the wrong person, because the first person to know in the field when a pass goes wrong is the person who, who actually gave the pass. They know before anybody else that pass has either gone too far, gone too short, gone too far to the left or right. They know before anybody. The receiver is the next person to know, and then the people around them. The last thing they need is for a coach to then come in and be like, ah, oh, you, you, that needed more. That needed to be hit harder. That needed to be passed further, whatever. And I think that that quietness allows that space to explore, which then moves me into the next part of the, the, the model, which is the A, the affirmation. So when they actually then do something, apart from where it may be praised, I will try and link what they do to a point where I can affirm it. That was a, that's, that's a great pass that you gave there because it opened up the play. So it's not just it's not just idle praise. It's praise that is actually linked to the task. And all of these things, because the evidence and all the research around affirmations and praise and exploration, speak to how it builds autonomy with the with the individual. Even with kids, it it enables them and allows them that sense of accomplishment, their level at where they're at right now. It also allows them to compare themselves to their peers because they'll do that naturally anyway. So let them do that without without them feeling inferior or superior. They'll just they'll start to appreciate. Well, that's just where I'm at right now. And yeah, I'd like to get to there, but and I can get to there because I'm in an environment that allows me get to there. And when all these things are happening, anxiety plummets. It it almost removes itself from the situation almost vicariously, but certainly through that type of, a, again, it's not hands-off. And again, I'd, I'd hate for people to, to hear what I'm saying as if uh, Ed just rocks up and lets them all just go bananas. And then he's just, you know, I don't. I, I heavily coach, heavily coach. But it's, it's, it's always through the last part of that model, the cue, is through questioning, is through that challenge. And again, if, you, if you're asking a kid who may be anxious or may be more anxious than their peers, or maybe not at all, but has, has, has an anxiety, as, as um, Stuart said, from their parents or from other coaches or from other, other elements in their life, the, the opportunity to engage with them through questions removes, again, removes that anxiety. Because then, the, then it gives them an opportunity and a chance to engage in what it is. We're, uh, how, how did you think that went? That could have been better. Oh, all right, okay. Well, that, that's your call. Um, is there any, what would you do the next time? might try and do this. Great. That's a great answer. Now, they've just maybe failed at something, but you've asked them a question and they've given you a great answer. So they're leaving that interaction with the coach, not feeling bad about themselves, but actually feeling driven to actually, well, I actually want to now go out and try that. And I think that's where that praise, exploration, affirmation, and questioning can really help to allow ev every, everybody, because who, who am I to say that that 11-year-old versus that 10-year-old or 12-year-old or 14-year-old shouldn't have, and again, using one of the phrases that, 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 that Stuart said, that guided discovery, that's, that's my job to, 
to, to, to get out of the way for them to experience it at, at their level with as little anxiety as possible because kids will kids will do crazy things themselves they will if you if you if you label the teams a b and c the c team straight away will think well we're we're, we're worse than everybody else and they they may or may not be who like in its in and of itself so we've got to work even harder to remove that level of anxiety and still still allow them be competitive because they are the kids are competitive there's no problem with competition with kids brilliant but we also then need to work really hard in that space for them to still be all they want to be in that place, not be what the coach wants them to be, which creates that anxiety again, or what their parents want them to be, but to be what they want to be. And that, in that, when I think of these, the, the, the idea of kids and anxiety and kids and their parents and coaches, two people jump to mind. Uh, Richard Shorter and Gordon McClelland do exceptional work in this space. And for anyone listening, they'd be two people to check out as far as how to manage those relationships for with the children yeah we've um, done some work with gordon and created a number of vlogs and, and actually a couple of podcasts himself for coaches looking at how they can support and work better with parents to sort of maximize the the sweet sort between the the parent the athlete and uh, and the coach themselves so yeah so there's a number of those are available on the coach learning development platform i think it just reminds me really to uh pull some of the key messages together i made made a few notes but i think the the first thing that that stands out really for me knowing who you are as a coach understanding what you stand for and really being really able to articulate your philosophy of how you want to if you like in this term play the game and how you communicate that to your athletes and your parents and that builds into what your coaching practice might look like and that enables you to build your if you like model of performance, which then goes into your skill acquisition and skill development model. And what else really came through to me throughout the, the the conversation, really, from both of you, is it doesn't matter whether you're coaching children, elite athletes, high performance teams, is the passion that you have for helping people be the best version of themselves and the energy and effort that you put into in your reflection and your practice in order for you to be the best coach you possibly can be. And in, in order to do that, you've talked a, a lot about creativity, being curious, thinking outside the box, maybe doing things a little bit differently to perhaps what the tradition, as you mentioned before, Ed, um, about um, being constrained by your sports culture, but uh, to do things a little bit differently in order to find the answers, in order to develop the athletes in the way that you want them to, to develop and play within your philosophy. And just to finish about the importance that, that Stu mentioned about the the balance really and, and to flex as a coach between empowering and giving young people and, and athletes the opportunity to, to explore and to discover um, and then really when you need to dial it back a little bit and to um, be a little bit stronger in your guidance and to give more advice and sometimes to, to give them an answer to help them move over that problem then to continue their journey. And I suppose that summarises as, as the art of coaching and and that's wrapped around a bigger piece of the culture and climate and the leadership that you show within your within your organisation, within your coaching team, within your practice session, that you're holding that direction and, and, and I think you've both emphasised the importance of, of a bigger picture and that practice design and skill acquisition is all part of a session, but that's built in part of a a bigger piece around 
how do you want to play the game what does that model look like what does our weeks look like our pre-season our early season our off season what does that look like into this year and building it into multiple years so you're building a much bigger picture and a much bigger vision as a coach and how you get that to your coaching staff your support staff parents and, and to the athletes so they can see as you sequentially start to build up a bigger development model the idea that skill development skill acquisition is is made up of so many different bits it's about the coach understanding themselves understanding the individual uh, sports psychology uh, leadership opportunities the climate and culture and the environment that I create the relationships with parents so many um, parts of it that are complex in order to be successful and as a coach we need to get beyond the the detail and lift our head up to look at, at how we build that that model of our coaching practice I think finally just requires me to uh, to thank you both for the the insight, the learning and the experiences that you've been prepared to share with the listeners in order for them to develop the skill acquisition. I think there's been so many nuggets and things for coaches to think about. So thank you on behalf of UK Coaching. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate it. Cheers, Chris. Join us at ukcoaching.org. Whatever you're doing to help people be active and improve, we can help you deliver great coaching experiences at a time to suit you.